Turning our attention to the book of Galatians this morning, we're looking at the fruit of the Spirit in our series on the fruit of the Spirit, looking this morning at joy. Paul writes to the church in Galatia, to a church that he dearly loves, to a group of Christians who were devoted followers of Christ, and then something happened. The immense joy that they had in being followers of Christ disappeared. And he wants them to to know it and for them to experience it again. So the Apostle Paul writes this from Galatians chapter 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are his sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. This is the next two verses of what we're focusing on this morning. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Skipping down to verse 15. What then has become of your blessedness? Or as other translations say, what then has become of your joy? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray for your spirit, Lord, that your spirit would descend upon us. We pray for your anointing. I pray for your anointing, Lord, that through your word and the wonders of Christ, by the power of your spirit, Lord, that we would encounter you. And Lord, not only would we know you more, but Lord, we pray that we would celebrate the fact that you, Lord, know us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Every year, the United Nations, in one of the many reports that they puts out, publishes the annual report on worldwide happiness. It's referred to as the Worldwide Happiness Report. It's the study that they do each year. And the way that this study works is that they have a rather large sample size. They interview about 1,000 to 2,000 people in every country, and then they rank which countries in the world are happiest and which ones are the least happiest. The way that they go about this in this survey is they ask people in every country to imagine a ladder. And the ladder is a ladder from 0 to 10, 1 to you know, 0 to 10, and 0 is imagine your worst possible life that you can conceive of. And 10 is imagining the best possible life that you can conceive of. And so they're asked, with the worst possible life at zero and the best possible life in this ladder at 10, which rung are you on? How would you score yourself? So the the survey respondents, they score themselves, and then the study committee, then they weight the response. And they weight the response on the basis of six criteria. And the criteria are, for a given country, What is the country's GDP? How much income do people have? And also per capita. What are people's life expectancies? And the assumption there is that people who have lower income and lower life expectancy obviously are not happier, are more unhappy than people who have higher income and higher life expectancies. The next two categories are rating it based on generosity. Is there generosity in the community? 
um, the level of corruption in the culture. Fourth and fifth, or the fifth and sixth ones are, how much freedom does an individual person have? And finally, number six, which is social support. Does someone have a social support network? So they take the rankings of where people project themselves onto the list, and then they weight them according to these categories, and that produces the annual report of worldwide happiness with which countries on the report are the happiest and which countries in the world are on the lowest rungs. Now, we might hear those metrics and say, okay, you know what? Yeah, I might disagree or something, but, you know, largely, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. But consider that. The world, and quite literally the world, I mean the United Nations, the world is defining happiness that the way to get happiness simply is through prosperity. Do you see how ridiculous this is? I mean, most people in most places, in most centuries, have never had the opportunities that, that, that weight these things. Most people in most places and most parts of the world have never had that. And the presumption of the study is that for most people is that happiness, the way to happiness is being surrounded by good circumstances. That if I'm happy, if things are going well. Now what's remarkable uh, about this study is that if you click on other United Nations reports that they also issue from their medical community, is that you will see that some of the happiest countries in the world also are some of the countries that have the highest rates of depression in the world. And, according to the other realms of their studies, richer countries have higher rates of depression than many lower-income countries. And there's been a multitude of research that shows that wealthier people are not necessarily happier people, often quite the opposite. So, and then you look at the study in the rank of countries of where different countries fall out on how happy they are, you get to the bottom section of the, the bottom tiers on the list, and you look at this, and you've got to ask yourself the question, what about the people that fall on the bottom third, the bottom half? I mean, the bottom 75%, take your pick. Are these people, I mean, these people who, have never, who will never have the opportunities, they will never have the GDP, they will never have the freedom, they will never have the lack of corruption, they will never have those opportunities. Are these people who never have these opportunities, are they, are they doomed to a life of misery? And the answer is, absolutely they are. Absolutely they're doomed to a life of misery. I mean, according to the metrics of the study, how it lays out. I mean, that's what it's saying. But anyone who goes on a mission trip to any other place knows how patently false that this just absolutely is. I mean, one of the things that's always shocking, particularly for Americans, is Americans go on a mission trip to Guatemala or the Philippines or take your pick to some third world country, and they go there... And their experience is that there's always this shock, or frequently this shock. And there's this shock, and people say, you know, I worship with this tiny little church in this hovel of a building, and I'm with these other Christians, and they, are, they were so happy, and they were so joyful, and they have so little, and they live in such awful circumstances. And somehow, they have a joy that transcends their circumstances. This concept is utterly shocking to us. It is so shocking. We are so surprised by it, and the reason why we're so surprised by it is because we functionally live and believe that happiness comes through having more stuff and better circumstances. And when we see something, someone who has a joy that does not have that, it becomes incomprehensible. 
But yet, you look at these Christians, and they have this joy that not only, this joy that transcends and overcomes the circumstances in their life. How does that happen? So Paul, I think, begins to identify in this passage. You know, I don't think it's just them. You know, this, you see this joy, but it's oftentimes the case when people become Christians, you know, that they become Christians or when they first own their faith for themselves. There's usually a period of time where people are, you know, they're just overwhelmed. They're overwhelmed by God's grace, overwhelmed by God's mercy. To think that I, as a sinner, one who, is, who deserves God's justice and displeasure, to think that out of God's love that Christ would die on the cross as my substitute, to give me life and life abundant, and I don't deserve any of it. When people come to believe that and trust in that as Christians, there's a joy. There's a, there's, there's a love. There's a joy, and there's, 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 there's this genuineness and this exuberance and this exuberance in worship that comes through knowing Christ. But oftentimes, too often, not always, but too often what happens is over time, that joy goes away. That joy just kind of evaporates. And Paul is writing to the church in Galatia here to a group of people who became Christians, many of whom had significant personal sacrifice, who converted to Christianity out of paganism, converted to it, became followers of Christ, had an overwhelming joy, had an overwhelming joy that that turned into this amazing generosity because they were just so excited out of love for the Lord. They just became so generous. And then something happened in the church. Something happened to them that their joy got eroded away. And so Paul looks at them and he writes to them and he says, What happened to your joy? What happened to your blessedness? What happened to to this state where you were so delighting in the goodness of God and knowing God? What happened to that? And he tells them what happened. What happened to it? What happened to their joy? is that they lost their joy in a quest for acceptance. They lost their joy in a quest for acceptance. Here's how Paul states it. He says, he goes to them, he says, How then can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more. He said, what happened to their joy? Here's what happened. They have turned back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. This is the way that it looked like in the church of Galatia. You had a number of people who they had become Christians. They had become followers of Christ. They had done so at a personal sacrifice. They wanted other people to know Christ. They were telling other people about Christ. And into the church, there were some people who joined their church who really seemed like they had their life together. You looked at them and said, you know what? Those are people who take their faith seriously. Those are people who are really living for Christ. Those are ones who are being really obedient to God's Word. And, <clears throat> and these people, as they're living in this church, started to communicate, sometimes verbally, sometimes non-verbally, that just, just exuded this, this impression and this teaching that says, you know what? If you're really a Christian, if you are really a Christian, there are certain things that you're going to practice in your life. There's certain things that are going to be expressed in your life, and Paul identifies what some of them are. In verse 10, he says, You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I have have labored over you in vain. That doesn't quite resonate with us. What he's identifying there is the Old Testament ceremonies and festivals. And what these 
professing Christians who wanted other people to believe in Jesus Christ, what these professing Christians were doing is that they were saying, by their words and by their deeds, that if you really want to be accepted, you have to keep the entire Old Testament law. And so they were studying their Bible, they're reading it, and they are implementing these principles without understanding who they are in Christ and how Christ fulfills the law. So what happens? Well, they would gather together, and they'd gather together, and they'd see what the biblical teaching is, and there was this growing sense with inside them that started to say, huh, I wonder if I'm doing enough. I wonder if I'm doing enough to be accepted. I wonder if I'm doing enough to be accepted by, by God. I wonder if I'm doing enough to be, accepted, to be accepted by them, be accepted by these leaders. I, 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 wonder if, I wonder if I'm doing enough here. And it starts to the sense that, oh, I, well, I need to do it. Well, I, you know, I failed in this kind of th- th- this area, and I'm not measuring up in this way, and I'm not measuring up in that way. And so this quest for acceptance took over their life. That's the religious version of it. It actually looks pretty much the same in any other community. It looks the same in secular communities. It looks the same in anti-Christian communities. There is, this, there is this expression in every community of what are, the standards that, what are the standards in place in order for you to be accepted, in order for you to be valued, in order for you to be appreciated. A little bit of a couple weeks ago, I went and saw the movie uh, The Greatest Showman, um, which has this addictive soundtrack. If you haven't seen it, just forewarning. And it's the story of P.T. Barnum and the founding of the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus. And um, it's a musical. And there is P.T. Barnum, and then he has a partner, uh, a ringmaster with him by the name of Philip, who is a minority, uh, minority shareholder in the company. And Philip was one who had put on operas, who was a, a great showman at the highest levels of the, of the elites of society. He grew up in wealth, he grew up in money, he had exceptional training, um, and he was wowing audiences with his, the refinement of the shows that he was putting on. And then P.T. convinces him to go and join the circus and to live with him and to live on the edge through the circus. During the time, Philip begins to fall in love with a young woman named Anne, who is the trapeze artist. And Anne is, um, comes from a not notable background, and she's an African-American woman. And so there's this scene in the movie where uh, Philip and Anne, he sets up a surprise date for them to go to the opera together. And as they are walking into the opera, his parents are walking out. And his parents see him walking in, holding hands with an African-American girl who obviously came from the circus. And her parent, his parents say to him, you have forgotten who you are. You have forgotten from where you came from. And what are they saying? They're saying, listen, there are certain standards for you to be accepted. There are certain people for you to date. They need to come from a certain income level, a certain background, a certain name, and they need to be a certain race. And if you want to be accepted by us, and if you want to be accepted in our community, in the life that you had and all that we've done for you, these are the standards that you need to have in order to be accepted. But it happens in all kinds of different levels, from great things to small things. This past January, when I was in class in North Carolina, I was in the dining hall, and I think it was a group of freshman girls walked in, and they went in and they sat on the table, and they were all wearing the exact same outfit. I mean, I actually thought they were a part of a group, and so I actually said, oh, what group are you guys from? Wrong response, right? 
don't do that, right? And so they are all wearing, uh, they were all wearing a blue striped uh, sweater top with, with uh, jeans on the bottom. And they were all wearing a blue striped, striped sweater top that had a scoop neck that was shifted over slightly, you know, but not over far enough to be like a one-shoulder thing because they are, after all, at a Christian school and that really wouldn't be acceptable. So, you know, just enough just to live on the edge a little bit, you know, and they're all wearing the exact same thing. And then the next day at lunch, they were all wearing a blue blouse and jeans. And I'm like, what on earth is going on, right? Well, what was it? Well, you see it all the time. People who want to be accepted. They want to be accepted by their peers. At the least, they're not sure if they are accepted, but they don't want to do anything that is going to cause them to be rejected, cause them to be excluded. And so the easiest way, we're going to roll through our, our, our series of outfits, and it just so happens that everyone puts on the same thing. Are you wearing blue tonight? Well, yeah, I think I might wear blue. I'm feeling kind of blue today, too. Do you want to wear blue? Yeah, let's all wear blue. Boom. Wearing blue. What is that? I don't know. You ladies can explain that to me. I don't get it at all. Um, I was just happy to have a clean shirt. So, but you take whatever picture of society that you want, and any time we are seeking acceptance from anything outside of Christ, you become enslaved to it. You become enslaved to other people's opinions. You become enslaved to being accepted or at least not being rejected. And what happens is that that slavery eats away and erodes your joy. Now, there's a typical way that our world says that you need to respond to it. The way you need to respond to it is this. You, don't need, you shouldn't care about what other people think. You don't need to worry about other people's opinion. You just need to care about what you think. You know who you are. You need to be true to yourself. You need to, you need to not re- pay attention to what other people think. Just be true to yourself. But that is deceptively is just as enslaving. It is just as enslaving. Here's why. In this wonderful little book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, Keller writes this. He says, you see, it is a trap. It is a trap to say that we should not worry about everyone else's standards and just set our own. That's not the answer. Boosting our self-esteem by living up to our own standards or someone else's sounds like a great solution. But it does not deliver. It cannot deliver. I cannot, and so he gives several examples. I cannot live up to my parents' standards, and that makes me feel terrible. I cannot live up to your standards, and that makes me feel terrible. I cannot live up to society's standards, and that makes me feel terrible. And I can't, up, I can't live up to other st- society's standards, and that makes me feel terrible. So perhaps the solution is I need to set my own standards. But I cannot keep them either, and that makes me feel terrible. Unless I set incredibly low standards. Are low standards a solution? Not at all. Because that makes me feel terrible because I realize I'm the type of person who has low standards. Trying to boost our self-esteem by trying to live up to our standards or someone else's is a trap. It's not an answer. It is just as enslaving. If you are seeking a level of acceptance, if you are seeking acceptance in any other group or from yourself outside of Christ, it enslaves you. And Paul is perfectly clear about the significance of what happens to Christians who seek their acceptance through other people or through themselves. Now, for some of you, particularly probably if you're over the age of 50, replace acceptance with significance or replace acceptance with your reputation. 
to seek a significance outside of Christ, that your reputation has been built on your career, your reputation is built on, on what you have achieved and what you have accomplished. It's the same issue. So what happens when Christians seek their acceptance through something other than Christ? What Paul says to them is he says, listen, Christians, what you have done, your Christian expressions, your Christian Bible study, the things that you have done as a Christian, you you Christians have turned the worship of Jesus Christ into the worship of Zeus. Into the worship of Zeus, the Greek god. That's what he says to them. He says, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that are by nature not gods. What were they enslaved to? They were in Galatia and Asia Minor. What was the dominant worship? It was paganism. What did people worship? They worshiped the Greek gods. Zeus, Hermione, uh, Poseidon, take your pick. I'm not sure there's a Greek or Roman. Some of you can correct me on that. Um, he says, you were, that's what you worshiped. You were enslaved to those that were by nature not gods. And then he goes on to say, but now that you've come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You Galatians, this is what you have reverted to. What are the elementary principles of the world? The elementary principles are the principles of earth, wind, fire, and water. And so what happened is that farmers would worship the harvest god, Because they needed good weather, and they needed good water, and they needed the earth to bear forth fruit fruit, and bear bear forth their harvest. So they would worship the harvest god by doing various things to make them acceptable, to be acceptable to the harvest priest, so that they could, so that the harvest god would accept them and give them good crops. Sailors who wanted fair winds and following seas, they would do the things that they needed to do in order to be accepted by the sea god and so on and so forth. And Paul says, you Christians, you are reverting back to overt paganism in your Christian practices. You Christians are reverting to becoming enslaved once again to the elementary principles, earth, wind, fire, water. You're being enslaved to the elementary principles which are, what are not, who are not God. They are non-gods. Now, consider the weight of what Paul is saying here to this church. Imagine if I were to Go to one of our small groups, a community group, a journey group, one of our many Bible studies that we have a church, as a church, and I'm sitting in that study, and I've gotten to listen what's going on and the conversations that are going on in that study, and I say to them at the end of it, I say, I feel that my entire ministry to you has been completely wasted. And you, you need to stop your pagan worship that is going on in this group You need to stop practicing and preaching a false and counterfeit gospel. You need to stop leading people away from Jesus Christ. What do you think the response would be? I think people would say, that is so inappropriate for you to say things like that. I'm sure the elders would be called, presbytery would probably be reported, and the justification would go along something like this. We are studying our Bible. We go to church. We pray. We hold each other accountable to the Bible's teaching. And that is exactly what Paul says the Galatians were doing wrongly. And that is what he says that they were doing, and they have reverted back to the elementary principles of the world, being enslaved all over again. How? Through their religious conduct. Why? Because wherever you are seeking acceptance outside of Christ, whether from yourself or other people, whether by the standards that you're seeking to live by, wherever you are seeking, that thing becomes your slave master's. And as some of us, Paul might say, you become enslaved through seeking acceptance by your friends. You become enslaved to getting and trying to earn your parents' approval. 
You become enslaved in a quest for self-acceptance to be who you truly are, who you don't really know who you truly are. You become enslaved by that. And do you know what happens to your joy when you become enslaved again? It evaporates. It disappears. There were some years ago when this verse, what then has become of your joy, hit me over the head like a two-by-four. I had been a Christian for many years. I was in seminary. I had been a faithful Christian for many years. I wanted to serve the Lord. I was eager to do it. I had made life decisions to do it. I was regularly engaged in evangelism. I would say that I would say that I was growing in my relationship with the Lord. I would even say that I was that I was content. That my soul was rightly satisfied and rightly content in the Lord. But as a Christian, could I honestly say that my life was characterized by joy? Was my life characterized by joy? What has happened? What has become of your joy? John Stott said, reading over his overview of the New Testament, he, says one of the, he said, one of the defining marks, if not the defining mark of a Christian, is their joy. And so I asked myself, could I honestly say that my life was characterized by joy? If I had to pick three words to describe my Christian faith, would joy be one of them? And the answer was no. Were the other three bad? Not at all. I think I probably would have picked faithfulness, integrity, probably worship. Are those things bad? Not at all. Again, I wasn't discontent. I wasn't unhappy. But I wasn't joy-filled either. And it took many months of being unable to get this question out of my mind that the Lord in His mercy showed me that my faith in Christ was more about my faith in Christ than my faith was about Christ. That when I look through my prayers, and I write out my prayers just to keep myself focused because my mind goes all kinds of places. When I look back through my prayers, I could see that my prayers were far more about my obedience or my lack thereof obedience than they were about Christ. And there was this question that continued to linger in my mind and said, what had happened? What had happened to my joy? It had evaporated in the quest for acceptance. You see, I wanted, I wanted to honor the Lord. But I also wanted to be accepted by other people. In particular, I wanted to be accepted by Christians, not in some remarkable way. I just wanted somebody to say, you know what, Walt? Good job, brother. Good job. You know what? You've been through a lot of stuff, and you're doing it. You're doing it, man. Way to go. Way to go. And I just wanted Christian leaders to look at me and to say, man, that's a guy. I mean, he's doing it. And at times, if I had questions in my own life in terms of whether or not, you know, I was, I was wrestling with something, and if I got some criticism about something, you know what my response would be? I'd say, well, I, I don't care. They don't know me. They don't know, they don't know my heart. They don't, know, they don't know. Like, I'm doing this right. And so my process to deal with criticism was to appeal to self-acceptance. Not just acceptance. I, I know what I'm doing. I, I, I'm true. I'm right here. That's what it looked like. Do I know what it continues to look like in my life when I get 
when I begin to get enslaved again to the elementary principles of the world, joy evaporates. I look at my life and my joy is a very strong indicator because I can't control it. It's a very strong indicator of my relationship with God. If there's a time, if I'm in a season of life where there's no joy or joy is waning, it is because my heart has been turning again to something other than Jesus Christ. I am being re-enslaved again to something other than Christ. And in my ministry here at Cornerstone, I think a couple of the things that have been so encouraging to me that the Lord has done. There's a couple people who have been Christians, some of them Christians, longer than I've been alive. Whether it was sometimes it's through sonship or gospel identity, sometimes through those studies, sometimes it's just because of the work of grace in their life. But Christians who've been, people who've been Christians longer than I've been alive, who God works in their heart in His grace in a profound and profound way. And I ask them, and they, and, they, and, they, and they begin to really understand profoundly what does it mean that God knows them and God loves them and accepts them as a child. And the response is they say, you know what? I have this joy in my life that I never knew before. I, I, have, I have a joy that I don't even know where, I, I mean, I know where it comes from, but I have, this, I have a joy in my life that I thought was unattainable for me. You know, I'd see it in other Christians' life, and I'd say, wow, I'd like to have that. Or I'd see it in their life, and kind of on my cynical days, I'm like, that's fake, that's not real. No, nobody really has a joy like that. But you know what? I've got that now. I've got that joy. I've got that joy because I have such a deeper understanding of who my Savior is and what He has done. So that just leads us to the question, how do we cultivate this joy? And Paul gives them the answer. He says, but now, now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is this possible? Now that you have known God or have come to be known by God, how, how can you be re-enslaved again? How can you let this happen? Look at what Paul's saying here. You know, there's, there's an amazing truth in the gospel, which is this truth that you and I are sinners, that we have done things and said things and thought things that we ought not to have done, and we have not done the things that we should do, that our thoughts are corrupted. Not only are they corrupted, but they're filthy. And through Christ's death on the cross, he pays the penalty for our sins, he takes, he removes us, we are forgiven, we are washed clean. That's amazing. That is a truth that should change us every day. But there is something that is far better than being forgiven. Forgiveness is great. It's not less than being forgiven, but it is far better than being forgiven. And the gospel offers something far better than being forgiven. Not less than being forgiven, but far better than being forgiven. Do you know what it is? It's being known by the living God. That's what Paul says. He says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather, more significantly, to be known by God. J.I. Packer, the theologian of the 20th century Anglican who passed away, a couple years ago, wrote, he said, it is, a wonder, it is a wonderful thing to be declared innocent by the judge of all, but it is a far greater thing to be known as a child by the God of the universe. And so what Paul does here when he says to them, 
How is it that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God? Why does Paul put this corrective in there? I believe he does so because Paul is shifting the locus of joy from our religious experience to God himself. I would venture to guess that if I asked most of you, probably if you asked me, how's my relationship with God doing, I would, we would probably say, well, you know, I'm doing okay. Um, you know, I, you know if, I'm, if you're a Christian, you might say, well, you know, I probably need to read my Bible more. I probably need to, probably need to pray a little bit more. I think, you know, I, I think I, you know, some things in my life that I really disappointed God on this past week, and, and I, I this, and, and, and I that, and I, I over here, and, and I, I feel this, and I feel that. And so the basis is, how's your relationship with God? It's, I don't know, it's all about me. It's my devotion, my service, my feelings, my perception, my aspect of this, my level of knowing God. And I judge my level of knowing God by the well level of it being expressed in my life at this moment. How well do I know God? Well, it depends on how well I'm doing my devotions. It depends upon how faithful I am in these different areas. These are the ways that I say that I know God. And Paul's like, that's not the basis of joy at all. That's a worthless basis. Rather, the true basis of joy that is far greater is now that you have come to know God, which you do through Christ Jesus, but far more amazingly, you have been known by God. That the God of heaven and earth comes to know you. That not only are you a prisoner who has been set free, but you're not set free to go do your own thing. Okay, you've been set free. Get out of my sight. No, God sets you free, and then he makes you his child, and he adopts you into his own household, and he knows you. And by him knowing you, that is the basis of joy. That is the basis of hope, not my individual experience of it, not my present level of obedience. How am I doing in my relationship with God? I'm doing great because God Almighty knows me, and he will not let me go. There was this girl who... Got to know her in college, and she was, um, she's a great girl. She was genuine, she was loving, she was smart, she was beautiful, she was compassionate. She's the type of person, like, everybody wanted to be her friend. Everyone at least wanted to say that she was their friend in, in the best possible way. And she was caring, and she was, she was not pretentious, and, and loved people really well. And she had this centeredness to her that was mind-boggling. See, when I was in high school, there was Thursday night and Friday afternoon instilled a level of anxiety into my life. And the reason for this level of anxiety was I was one, there was this question going on in my head that was saying, were my friends, was I going to do something with my friends on Friday night? And the real question was I was asking was, were some of my friends going to call me and invite me to do something? That was anxiety level one. Did I have friends, and did those friends want me to be included, right? So there was this word like, am I, am I going to get included? Are they going to include me or are they not? And then there was a second level of anxiety, which was, if I got invited to do something, or if I asked somebody to do something, would, would my parents let me go? Now, the reason for the second level of anxiety was not so much that we were going to do such, such epic things on that Friday night, though they were truly epic, I assure you. Um, the le- second level of anxiety was on the basis of, I-, I don't want to be left out. 
Like if my parents say that I can't go and my friends are doing something, this might exclude me. I might no longer be accepted by them. They might, they might, not, they might never invite me again if my, parents don't, if my parents don't let me go. And I certainly don't want somebody else to do something to me that's going to prevent me from being accepted by these other people who I, definitely want, who I, who I desperately want to be accepted by. But this girl, she rarely went. And she was always invited, and she rarely ever went. And she rarely went out. And if you asked her, you know, said, hey, we're all going to do something just because she's a, a ton of fun to be around. And, and, and if people invited her, she'd say, ah, no, my, my, my family's doing something on Friday night. And you're like, oh, okay, cool, whatever. And then you talked to her on Monday morning. So what did your family do on Friday night? Oh, we didn't really do anything. You know, I think my brother read a book. I think my mom and I watched a television show. My dad was working in the basement. The next Friday, the exact same thing would happen. And you're like, what is that? It was mind-boggling. But I think if you pressed her on it, and she was a devoted believer, I think if you pressed her on it, I think she would say, I have a family who loves me. And I love them. I just want to be with them. You are known by, the God, by God Almighty. You are known by the Lord of heaven and earth. You are no longer enslaved on this quest for acceptance from other people or from yourself. Yes, previously you were enslaved to seeking happiness through your circumstances. Previously you were enslaved to seeking acceptance from other people or acceptance within yourself or some level of joy therein. You were enslaved to these things. But in Christ, if you are a believer in Christ, you have been set free. You were a slave. Do not be, set, do not be enslaved again. The text says that you have been redeemed. The word to redeem is a slavery term. That if someone, if there was a a lineup of slaves and they were about to be sold and a redeemer came in, what happened is to to redeem a slave means someone else paid the price for that person to be set free. Someone else came in and said, I will pay whatever cost it takes so that that person would be redeemed, that they would be bought back. And your heavenly father looks out on this crowd and he says, that one, and that one, and that one, and that one right there. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. I have bought you, and I have bought you with a price, which is the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You have not only been set free to go do whatever you want, but you've been set free, and you've been adopted as a child of God. And the reason why you are accepted is not because of anything that you do or have done or haven't done. It's not because of, of any aspect within you but wholly because of the work of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ who was accepted by his Father, Jesus Christ who perfectly did everything his Father asked, everything that his Father hoped for. You know, for me, for you, there is no basis that God should accept you or accept me. There's no inherent aspect of us or inherent aspect of our being that God looks down and he says, yeah, I I definitely need that person. No. No. But in this amazing thing, through the work of the gospel, he redeems you. And because he redeems you, he not only, God, not only does not reject you, will not forsake you, 
will not abandon you, but he sets you free from slavery. He adopts you and he makes you his own. And now, not only can you know God, but far more important, you are now known by God. You are now known by God who accepts you, who knows you, who loves you, and who delights in you. I venture to guess that there is a part of you right now that wants to rejoice. There's a part of you that wants to rejoice for who you are in Christ. There's a part of you that wants to rejoy. There is a part of you that wants, that is experiencing joy and you want to rejoice because of who you are in Christ Jesus. Because the God of the universe knows you. And that is the way it works. That's how joy is cultivated. Is that you come to embrace what God has done for you. You come, to, you come to experience it. You come to embrace this truth that God knows you. And by the working of His Holy Spirit, as you believe that, He inflicts you with joy, whether you want it or not. He, he inflicts you with joy. He inflicts you with this, this sense that God knows me. God loves me. And He gives you this, this, His presence, and He gives you this centering that can handle any circumstance because you don't need to find acceptance in other people. You don't need to find acceptance in yourself. You just need to know that the only opinion that counts is God Almighty and He accepts you and He loves you and He knows you. You see, in Christ Jesus, you are no longer enslaved, but you are accepted, adopted. You are known by God. And by his indwelling spirit, may he fill you with joy overflowing. Let's pray together. Father, you're loved and accepted in Christ. Thank you for the joy of knowing you and serving you. Lord, fill us with joy. Help us to experience it anew and afresh this morning. Amen.